for the last two Sundays, we've been thinking about what it means to be a healthy church. And we call this entire series, Healthy Things Grow, because there's part of this that we have to make sure we add on this, this end. I told you this is three lessons that were originally meant to be one lesson, but we had to dig down into each one of them. And we think about healthy things growing. We've studied Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I hope you'll turn back to that text because we're going to finish that up this morning and think about these things that God Himself has told us about not just how to make the church grow, but how to make the church healthy so that He then can, can then bless it with growth. Two weeks ago on July the 3rd, we thought about the fact there must be healthy attitudes. We spent a long time digging down into that one phrase in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We mentioned that that's a very difficult task. It's a work thing because what Paul actually said there is we must be willing to exert ourselves to guard that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And backing up to verse 2, there are those attitudes that undergird how we do that. Things like mildness and patience and so forth, enduring in love. And then last week on July the 10th, we considered the fact that there must be healthy teaching or healthy doctrine. The church teaches something. It's not just an attitude thing. There must be those core foundational things that we, we teach, we hold to, we defend, we believe. The seven ones, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. There is one body even as, and one spirit, even as you're called and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. We must be unified in believing and teaching and holding to and defending those core fundamental doctrines. But there's also work to do. Paul did not leave everything in the realm of the mind. You see, attitude starts in the mind. Belief, the things we hold to, is in the mind. But there's work to be done. And so for a church to be healthy and so have God's blessing upon it, there must also be healthy labor. And that's how Paul ends this section. And what we're going to do this morning is really two things. We're going to spend most of our time in the meat of the lesson thinking about what it means to have healthy labor or healthy work in verses 11, 12, and 13. And then in just a couple of minutes as we close, we're going to think about the so what of this entire series. If we have healthy attitudes, if we have healthy teaching, and if we have healthy labor, so what? That's verses 14, 15, and 16. But let's look at verses 11, 12, and 13 together and think about three very, very simple, fundamental things about the healthy work of the church. In the first place, Paul writes about the fact that there is a division of labor. It doesn't mean the work is divided as in people are infighting and, and struggling and striving. In fact, this whole section of Scripture is about unity. But instead, he points out that there are different abilities and tasks. And he does that more at the leadership level of things. In verse 11, he lists some things. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. I'll tell you why I have that hyphenated in just a second. Shepherds and teachers, why I have that hyphenated. But Paul is saying that there are certain roles that certain people play. And we could go all over the place in the New Testament to show the, the organization of the church. In some ways, that's what he's talking about. Maybe the clearest example of that is how he begins that little letter to the book of, uh, uh, to the Philippians that he writes to the elders and the deacons and the saints. You have all the organization of the church right there. The elders, the deacons, and the saints, or the Christians. And here, as Paul is writing about the work of the church, he suggests that there are different roles for different people to play. 
Now, here's where I'll tell you why I have that last one hyphenated. In the early church, you had apostles. Obviously, Paul was one, Peter was one. And sometimes we talk about the book of Acts, and we talk about how we should really call that book some of the acts of some of the apostles, because you don't really read about what, for example, Bartholomew was doing in the book of Acts. You just read about Peter, really, for the first half of the book, and Paul for the latter half of the book. But we know all of the apostles were about doing certain works. They were overseeing, they were leading, they were teaching, and yes, they were performing miracles to confirm that they were who they said they were and to confirm the message that they were teaching. But in Acts chapter 6, you see a very interesting thing where the apostles see a problem in the church at Jerusalem. You you remember that the Hellenistic widows were not being fed. And that's where we sometimes talk about the first deacons being put in place, Acts 6 verses 1 through 7. But the apostles say there, you take care of this, we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. They were overseeing the work. Who does that now? The shepherds. And what is one of the qualifications of a shepherd, an elder? That he is able or apt to teach. In Ephesians 4 verse 11, between the word shepherd and teacher in your Bible is the word and. In the original language, that word and is not there. It literally says, and shepherds, teachers. Because, I believe, the apostles gave way to elders who oversee the work of the church, who lead the teaching of the church, who make sure that what is everything we've talked about so far is being done. We don't have apostles anymore, but we do have elders or shepherds or pastors or bishops or overseers or presbyters who teach. The early church also had prophets, people who were given a message and often given a miraculous ability to prove that message, speaking in tongues and so forth, to prove that what they were saying really was true and really was right. You read about that from time to time in the book of Acts and elsewhere. Well, none of us today can do things like speaking in tongues, but who did the prophets give way to? Evangelists. People who share the good news. People who proclaim both publicly and privately the message of Jesus Christ, the message of the New Testament. And so Paul was saying as he opens this section that there is a division of the work. Again, not a division as in that they're butting heads, but there are certain roles for people to play. There there are elders in, in the New Testament church, shepherds who oversee the work, who lead the teaching, and they're evangelists who proclaim the message, who good news the message. And so we must say, boy, I like this lesson so far because so far he's only preaching in this room to eight people. He's preaching to the six elders and Tower and himself. I really like this, that there's only a couple of things for, for people to do. But that's what Paul wants us to make sure is not a part of our mindset. Because he goes on to the second place to remind us that all are laborers. Ephesians 4 and verse 12 is, in my opinion, and this is opinion, one of the most underutilized, underused, and underappreciated verses in the entire New Testament. Because in Ephesians 4 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul tells us what is one of the major roles of, as we would call it in our modern day, evangelists and preachers, or Uh, I mean, excuse me, elders and preachers, or elders and evangelists. There are a lot of things that they are to do. But notice verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Somebody says, now wait a minute. Are you telling me we can't just hire all of our works done? That's exactly what I'm saying. Paul was saying that one of the major roles of 
elders or shepherds, and even of evangelists, teachers, is to make sure that all the saints are equipped for the work of ministry. Now I want to look at a couple of words in that verse to see exactly what Paul was saying. The first is that little word, equip, to equip the saints. It's an interesting word. Some translations have the word perfecting. I think the King James Version has that. And that's closer to the original word. But it's a very difficult word to translate. There's a couple of reasons why. One is just a technicality, that this is the only place in the New Testament where this Greek word is found. They couldn't go somewhere else and say, oh, this is how Peter used that word, or here's how Paul used this word elsewhere. This is it. This is the only place this word is found. But the other reason this word is difficult to translate is because we don't talk the way that they would have. If you were to write this in English, the way it actually reads, it would say this, for the, equip, uh, for the equipation of. You go, that's not even a word. Exactly. Or, for the perfection of. And you say, well, that's close, because the King James has perfecting. But you see, this is not an ongoing word. What this word literally means is, the elders, the evangelists, have overseen the work, and have made sure that every saint has such a task and is so equipped to do the task that it is as if the task is already done. Now, you want to tell me that's not an underappreciated concept. It's as if the task is already done. Not being done, it is done. It's assumed that the job will be done, that the work will be done by those who are saints, by those who are Christians. The other word, of course, I want us to think about is the word ministry. This is a form of the word from which we get our word deacon. You see the word translated in English up there, if you can see that. It's a little smaller than I want it to be. This does not mean that every Christian is a deacon in the official sense of the word, that they hold that title. But all the word deacon means is a servant. And that's what Paul was saying here is. In fact, if you mark in your Bible, you may want to write the side-by-side ministry, just write the word serving or servant. We equip the saints for the work of service or serving. That's an interesting thought, that he does not say that the elders and preachers do all the serving or all the ministering. I don't mind being called the minister here, and Tyler is called the youth minister here, but we need to make sure we teach on the concept that I'm not the only minister here. I have anyone who ministers by way of preaching publicly and teaching in other ways, but all Christians are ministers. All Christians are servants because that's what we are called to through the New Testament. Somebody says, well, but I've had my day. I, I, I'm too old now, or I'm, I'm not a good speaker, or physically I can't just get around like I used to, or I'm too young, or I'm too new of a Christian. You know, we, we can give any number of excuses if we so want to, to not really be involved in the work of the church. I want to share with you something that's not original with me. In fact, you may have seen it before. It was written several years ago in a book. I was talking about making sure the church had full invo- involvement in the work. And the concept was this, that a church should have a program of work that is both deep and wide. Don't start singing the song and doing the hand motions, okay? This was what was meant. That when we put, put together a program of work for a congregation, there should be a width or a breadth to it so that all the different talents that are represented can be involved in the work of the church. Not everyone can do the things that I can do, and certainly I can't do everything that that you can do. You do not want me 
on the team or the group or the ministry or whatever that takes care of the van and the bus. You don't want me on that team unless you want our youth group stalled going to AIMCON somewhere probably around Delmer. Okay? That's as far as they would make it if I was the ones working on, on the bus and the van. But there also needs to be a depth to the work of the church. By that is meant that each person's work is seen as challenging and vital to the work of the church. It's not just some, well, I'll sign up to send cards to people, and I'll send one card every decade, and therefore I've been involved. There's there's a depth to it, a challenge to it. That's exactly what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 4 and verse 12. That every person who is a member of a congregation needs to be involved in the work, but needs to have a challenging work that it is assumed will be done because they are so desirous of doing the work. I hope you paid attention to the announcement that Sean made a little while ago about the congregation meeting coming up on August the 7th. I'm planning on preaching in a couple of weeks more about that. That's part of what we're trying to do, the elders are trying to do, as far as that goes, is to make sure that we have plans and programs in place, not not just we have systems or not just we have a nice-looking organizational chart, but because... We all need to be involved. And we all need to be involved in challenging work to help the congregation move forward. Listen, if you are a Christian, the moment you put Christ on in baptism, you enlisted in His army. Which means there's a role for you to play. And that role is not sitting on the sidelines. It is making sure that you are involved in the work of the church. All are laborers. Number three, I want you to consider the fact that there is a perfect standard. If you were to ask me, Adam, what are the most challenging verses in the New Testament? I'm not sure what all I put on the list, but I can guarantee you Ephesians 4.13 would be on a very short list. It's one of the most challenging verses really in all the Bible. But for certain, as we think about the work of the church, Ephesians 4.13 sets forth, I almost called this, by the way, a lofty standard, But I changed it to a perfect standard because that's exactly what Paul writes about. Notice verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now tie this back to the context before we get into the particulars here. Remember that all the way back up in verse 3 of this chapter, and as we said earlier in this series of lessons, that every Christian is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so Paul, near the beginning of this section, emphasizes unity. And now as he starts to draw this section to a close, what does he say? He's emphasizing unity again. And what he's saying is, if the leaders of a church can possibly... Get every member of the church involved in ministry, in looking at something outside of themselves, in serving others. We are pushing forward today when every member of the church is unified. You see, this whole section is talking about one thing. He's not talking about 19 different subjects. He's talking about one thing. And part of that unity comes from the leadership making sure that the members are all involved in the work of the ministry. And to do that, he shows us a perfect standard. First, he says, we all attain this unity. This is not just the goal of church leadership. It's not just the goal of the elders. It should be the goal of every Christian to be unified. Listen, 
If all you think about doing is being involved in the church is jumping on Facebook and talking about what's wrong with the church, you need to read this verse again. (laughs) Because that's not what Paul is talking about. I need to make sure that I'm doing something for someone else to the glory of God. We all need to be involved in this. And then Paul talks about seeking the unity of the faith. We discussed this concept in last Sunday's lesson. Our unity is based upon that perfect standard of the Word of God. It's not just what I think about. It's not your opinion or my opinion. Our our unity is based upon an understanding of the fact that there is one faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, Jude in verse 3. And we teach that, we believe that, and we defend that, as we talked about last week. That's part of what holds everything together. How does that fit with Christ? Because He is the message. He's the unifying factor of the whole Bible. The Old Testament, He is coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, He is here. Acts through Revelation, He's coming again, and here's how you live to glorify Him. We need to make sure that we... Teach and believe that faith, the faith. And then Paul talks about the fact that we need to have a knowledge of the Son of God. I love this phrase. There are at least two words in the New Testament for knowledge. One was the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. You're going to bring it to English. Gnosis. And that word basically meant head knowledge. You know stuff. You just know stuff. That's not this word. This word is epinosis. That word means this, I know something so well that I know what is behind it. In this case, I know the person behind the faith that I am defending. I have an intimate knowledge of the Son of God until we all attain to the faith with the knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. And what does that lead to? as Paul writes it here, to mature manhood or to maturity. I heard someone say recently that Jesus never told His followers to have childishness. He told them to have childlikeness. I like that. And I think that's the concept of what Paul was saying here. Yes, there are certain qualities of children that we need to have. We, we've, we've heard sermons on that many, many times before. You know, all, all these childlike qualities that we need to have as far as our faith goes. But Jesus never called us to be people of childishness. Instead, we press on to maturity. There's a maturity to our faith. Add to your faith virtue, knowledge, and all those things. It's a constant growing and maturing. And what happens to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? What is Paul saying? He is saying the standard is this. Every one of us looks like Jesus. That's why I say this is the most challenging verses in the New Testament. The standard is, if Jesus is the head of the church, and He is, that's already mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1, if Jesus is the head of the church, and if the church is His body, and it is, again, Ephesians chapter 1, then what Paul was saying here, you tie this whole book together, is this. That when someone looks at the body, the church, they should not be able to tell where the body ends and the head begins. We look so much like Jesus that when people look at us, that's who they see. And not just the elders, not just the evangelists, but we equip the saints for the work of ministry And all the saints seek the perfect standard. Folks, I can't make up anything more challenging than that. But that's the the challenge and the standard from the Apostle Paul.
So there must be healthy work, healthy labor. We live in times where a lot of people are concerned about all kinds of things as it pertains to the church. Doctrinal problems, unity problems, social problems, problems of being too much like the world, worldliness, problems with wanting to be just another denomination, and so on and so forth. And, and leaders and members alike sometimes just, just throw their hands up in the air. They, they act as if there's just no solution to keep the, the church as Christ would desire it to be. But for the last three Sundays, this morning included, we have not looked at a single quote-unquote church growth expert. We've not consulted some research firm. We've not called in some consultant to give us some suggestions about how, would, how our congregation can be more attractive or welcoming or all those sorts of things. And those those things are good at times. And as I, as I told you as we began this series, I like those kind of things from time to time. I love studying this kind of stuff. But if all we ever look at is that, and we never look at what God Himself has already revealed, we've put the cart before the proverbial horse. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has already told us not just how we can make the church grow, not just how we can explode attendance or explode giving or have to add on buildings. That's, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is what does it mean to be a healthy church as God would define health? And if it is that, then God will give the increase. But as we close this series, I want us to think about the so what very quickly. If we achieve healthy attitudes... If we can emphasize and teach and defend healthy doctrine, and if we can have every member, every member involved in healthy labor, what is the outcome? Paul writes that at the end of this paragraph. Verse 14, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness of deceitful schemes. Do you want doctrinal error to stop infiltrating the church? Do you want to hold off false teaching? Have healthy attitudes? Healthy teaching? And healthy labor. Verse 15 is the beginning of verse 16. But rather speaking the truth in love, in love, we are to grow up, grow up in every way into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by which every joint with which it is equipped. Do you want things like worldliness, apathy, division to stop? You want to make sure the church is distinct? Then have healthy attitudes, healthy teaching, and healthy work. And the end of verse 16, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You want the church to grow? Have a healthy church. Two Sunday mornings ago and about 30 minutes ago, I stood right about there and uttered the very simple phrase, I want the church to grow. Two weeks and about 30 minutes later, or maybe 35, sorry, that continues to be true. I don't know how long the Lord will give me on this earth, but however long that is, that will continue to be true. And I want that to be true universally. I want to, as I said two weeks ago, read about places and hear about places all over the world, China and India and elsewhere, where people are being baptized, where the church is growing constantly. I want to read about those things. I love that. It encourages me every single time I see that. But as I said then, I'll say now, I want this church to grow. But it starts with me. And it starts with each one of us being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, have healthy attitudes. 
making sure that I'm not afraid to believe, teach, and defend those cardinal foundational doctrines, having healthy teaching. And then me saying, I may not be able to do everything, but there is work to be done and having healthy labor. If each and every member of the Ninth Avenue family would hold healthy attitudes, would believe, teach, and defend healthy doctrine, and would be involved in the work of the church, God Himself has promised that whether it's numerical, spiritual, or unifying, there will be growth. Because healthy things grow. Are you a part of the health? Are you making sure that your life reflects the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ? Just a few weeks ago, I heard someone talking about church growth a little bit, and it was interesting the way he worded it. He, he's a preacher at a large congregation, but when he got there, it wasn't, that, wasn't anywhere near as large as it is now. And so he gets asked all the time, how did this happen? How did you go from, I think he got to like 500, now there are about 1,000 people. And he gets asked all the time things like, we're a church of about 200, how do we get to 250? And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, because we're a little larger than 200, but not, not that much larger than that. I thought, boy, I want to hear this answer, because I think that way. Man, I'd love to see next week 300 on the board, 400 on the board. He, he said, you want to get from 200 to 225 or 200 to 250, I'll tell you a good place to start. 201. There's someone in this room this morning who will help the numbers on the board here in a minute as far as attendance, but who's not part of the kingdom. It's time for that one. And there's many people in this room this morning who, who are Christians, but maybe it's attitudes, maybe it's the teaching, maybe it's the work, are not really, really holding to those things that help unify the health of the church. It's time for one. And it's your time. If you respond to the Lord's invitation, as we stand and sing to encourage you.